you know, significant heat wave events followed by a significant lightning event followed by a significant heat wave followed by a significant wind event. And they all are on top of each other. You take one of them out, it would have been less severe. Anytime you have these sort of events, it's not just one factor. Exactly. It may be a factor and it may be an important factor, but however, a lot of things have to line up for something like this to happen. Welcome to Living with Fire, a podcast that explores the critical role fire plays in America's forests, lands, and communities. I'm your host, Amanda Monti, and today we're talking about the so-called Labor Day firestorm that devastated the Northwest and Northern California on the week of September 6th. This week's guest is fire meteorologist Nick Nosler, who works for the National Interagency Fire Center in Boise and is on the team that curates fire weather forecasts and fire predictions for fire season. We spoke quite a bit about this historic fire event, as well as some of the reasons that it was as bad as it was. The biggest takeaway was that this unprecedented week of wildfires wasn't caused by any one thing, but instead by multiple layers consisting of bizarre weather, years of mismanagement, and to a certain extent, climate change. Nick's favorite answer seemed to be, it depends. And I think that's a really good indication and reminder that nothing in fire is as simple as it's sometimes made out to be. One last thing to note before we get started, This episode was recorded on September 15th, so when we talk about last week, we're actually referring to the week of September 6th through the 13th. I'll let Nick take it from here, but thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So currently, I'm a meteorologist uh, for the Bureau of Land Management, uh, working up here at the National Interagency Coordination Center, National Interagency Fire Center here in Boise. Um, For the most part, we, our main task is providing briefings uh, to the National uh, Multi-Agency Coordinating Group, or NMAC. Uh, So they're the ones that are kind of in charge of strategically placing national resources, air tankers, crews, teams, that sort of thing, um, depending on the activity level. So we provide them an overview of fire potential, fire weather, and so they can make better decisions on how to best allocate resources. And, uh, you know, it's, I guess it's just not fire. Uh, obviously, we've been keeping a close eye on the tropics as well, too, um, with Hurricane Laura last month and now uh, Hurricane Sally as well, uh, because that can take up resources and take up, um, you know, teams as well, too. Oh, wow. I didn't. Okay. I wouldn't have expected that. Um, so if you could briefly explain, um, or actually, how has your week been? Has it been a little chaotic? <laughs> So I started this job first week of July. July 5th was actually my first day. And so it's been quite busy. Uh, And then my counterpart up here, actually my second day on the job informed me he was taking a different job. And so uh, he left, when was that? The week before Labor Day? Yep. And so (laughs) things got real uh, quickly after he left. It was, it was real before that. We were at PL5 before he left, but uh, then the wind event and everything got us just very, very busy. Um, so yeah, it's uh, been extremely busy for the past month or two. It's really since I got up here, we started to really ramp up in activity. Dang, they just threw you right in. You're, you're yeah. getting a good crash course here. Um, yes. And you kind of mentioned the wind event. Can you Give my listeners kind of a brief understanding of what went on this week and last week and what, what made it so sort of unprecedented. Yeah, of course. It, you know, we had, you know, a bunch of large fire on the ground just due to pretty active fire season. 
and uh, the lightning event that came through California in August and into you know, parts of the Great Basin, Pacific Northwest, Northern Rockies, we already had a lot of large fire on the ground. Mm -hmm. Then with continued dry conditions, almost no monsoon this year uh, to kind of cool things off, to increase fuel moistures, then we essentially had a fall trough come through. Uh, and these fall troughs are famous for bringing offshore downslope winds, whether you want to call them east winds, north winds, Diablo winds, Santa Ana winds. Um, that's essentially what happened. The one thing where it was really bad, I, I don't want to underscore it. it, it could have been a little bit worse because the Santa Ana winds did not increase as much as we thought. So while the northwest, northern California, central California was as bad, if probably worse than we were anticipating, we did dodge a little bit of a bullet in Southern California. So we had a bunch of large fire on the ground, peak fuel dryness, and then essentially a weather system came through that we don't normally see until October or November. And then it really ramped up uh, fire activity. It was pretty surreal to watch the fires grow in real time on satellite. And then also with the uh, wildfire cams uh, network in California and Oregon. And that was all part of the same wind event, um, as far as you know. I mean, like, I was just talking. Uh, I was just talking to somebody else, and they weren't sure if it was a little disconnected uh, between what happened in Northern California and the Northwest. But I think it was all. It was all just this like Diablo East wind event. Correct. Yeah, it was the same upper level trough that came just pushing south, out of Western Canada and into the Intermountain West, and then just a bunch of cold air into the basin that sets up that pressure gradient that's very conducive for offshore flow. Uh, and this time almost throughout the entire West Coast. And is that kind of what made it unprecedented, the fact that it was so widespread? Or what, what sort of contributed to being it being called this unprecedented event? I think what made it so, you know, historic or unprecedented, at least in modern times, uh, that we had so much fire on the ground mm -hmm. and fuels were, they're at their peak dryness, you know, end of August, early September, you know, fuels are peaking it's right before any fall rains have started to fall and then we get very strong winds mm -hmm. and these winds were some of the strongest uh, that we've seen in quite some time across parts of the west coast especially for this time of year mm -hmm. and so I think it's that unusual factor of having very strong winds with peak fuel dryness is what we don't normally see over that broad of an area. So we get that occasionally in the fall with Santa Ana's or Diablo winds uh, across California, but it's pretty rare to get it over such a broad area and so strong and have so much fire already on the ground. Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll probably, I'll probably come back to that. Um, but I'd love to talk about fire predictions and kind of what you guys had lined up for this summer um, and how, how you determine those fire predictions, um, how you create those predictive fire maps. So it's a lot of science, but it's also a little bit of art. Um, it's not straightforward. You know, we take what is normally, you know, kind of climate signals uh, in the terms of, you know, El Nino, La Nina, that plays a part of it. Uh, ongoing um, temperature and precipitation trends with what we're seeing with kind of the upper level pattern. And then also, what did we see last winter and spring? Uh, was it a dry winter? Was it a wet winter? Uh, those things, it doesn't necessarily mean a dry winter equals bad fire season or wet 
winter equals not a bad fire season. It depends. A lot of it is based on where you are, what region you are, and then also what elevation or what type of fuels uh, those conditions occurred in. Mm -hmm. So we kind of all blend that up into, <laughs> mix it up into a stew, uh, and then look at kind of long range uh, forecasting, you know, climate uh, prediction center, look at their outlooks. We do our own analysis of kind of climate patterns. And then with what we're seeing, then try to predict, okay, what is the fire season going to look like over these kind of subregions or regional areas? So it's a lot of science. Um, it's an imperfect science. Uh, and uh, we rely a lot on our experience, climatology, and just trends that we're seeing. And how accurate were our predictions for this summer? I actually, I didn't do fire this summer, so I didn't really keep a good eye on the predictive services for this year, but um, are those panning out to be pretty accurate? You know, to be honest, I think overall we did a pretty good job, but the specifics we really haven't had time to go back and look at. We've That's been fair. so busy uh, <laughs> trying to do that. I think this off season, if we, if we get an off season, hopefully this fall we'll have a wet winter. Uh, we'll go back and really kind of dissect and do a, you know, a, a thorough analysis on how well we did and, you know, what we could have done better and what surprised us. I think the one thing that really surprised us was just the complete lack of a monsoon. That's almost, you know, talking to people who have been doing this 20, 30, 40 years, uh, they've not seen this lack of a monsoon signal into the Southwest or Western United States. It, you know, it was pretty poor uh, this year. And that's what kept the Southwest United States busy well into August. Mm -hmm. So how much does snowpack versus early spring precipitation contribute to all of this? Um, like in your experience, what one almost contributes more to lessened or increased fire behavior during the summer? You know, it's one part of it and it really depends on where you are. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, obviously snowpack is important, but it's not the only thing. Usually the better snowpack you have, the less likely you are to have an above average fire season, but that doesn't hold true everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have above average snow, snowpack, but it starts melting early, right. then that could be a problem because you're, those fuels are gonna dry out. So it's not only the amount, but it's also the timing of when this occurs. So while the amount is very important, it also matters how it's established, how long it stays established, and then even as important, if not more important, what is the weather late spring and through the summer? So if you have a very wet and cold winter, but it turns off in March, and then you move into a very warm and dry period, you could still have a, an above average fire season where you could have a warm, relatively dry winter, but then early spring, it turns wet and cold, then you might have a below average fire season. So timing and amount uh, is just very important. And then even just regional uh, kind of subclimate areas are important as well, too, because what might be important to the Pacific Northwest or what might work in the Pacific Northwest might not work in the Southern Rockies. Right. And I think I think a lot of people get caught up in like sort of black and white, really definitive definitions of what a good or of what might predict, uh, you know, a bad fire season or a good fire season. A lot of the time we go into fire as a on a, on a crew. And well, they will usually tell us, you know, we don't know what the fire season is going to be like until September, until it's yeah. pretty much over. 
Um, but I think, I think a lot of the public gets caught up in like, oh, we had a really good snowpack. Um, and, and it's often really black and white, but I'm curious if you know, or if you've run into a lot of sort of misconceptions in how these things are predicted or in forecasting. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation that goes on in weather in general and then fire as well too. Uh, and it, it's not that surprising and it's understandable because it's a very complicated issue. You know, what might work in Southern California doesn't work in the Northern Plains or, you know, in the Pacific Northwest of Southern Rockies, like the example I used earlier. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very complex interdisciplinary type of study um, or type of field, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And because of that, and because it's imperfect science, you know, it's, you're trying to forecast ecology, you're trying to forecast weather, uh, you're looking at long-range predictions, uh, a lot of intersecting time scales and spatial scales makes it very complicated. And so because of that, there's a lot of reliance on experience, which is a good thing. Um, but it also, you know, old wise tales hold up sometimes, but not all the time. Or old rules of thumbs would be probably a better way to describe those. And, and those are invaluable. I've learned a lot from you know, people who've been working in the same area for a long time. And, you know, they're like, hey, you know, once, uh, once RH gets below 15%, then we see really good fire activity. And you're like, really? And then you see it happen time and time again. You're like, huh, there's something to that. So those things are invaluable to us as forecasters who are coming more from the science side rather than being in the field and experiencing it. But there's also times where field experience, you might have kind of a narrow view or not a broad enough sample or not completely understand exactly what happened. And so those things, you know, it's just great to talk with people in the field because there's times that we make the same exact mistakes. And so working together, we can kind of dispel a lot of those misunderstandings or misconceptions about fire and weather. Living with Fire podcast is supported by Mystery Ranch Backpacks. It's not an over-exaggeration to say that I've spent more time with the Mystery Ranch pack than I have with my family and friends over the last four summers. Every crew I've worked on has used Mystery Ranch's packs. So this being the case, I've seen their line gear shoved into and tossed out of the back of trucks. I've watched them get covered in flying embers and have used one as a pillow many, many times. Through it all, I've never so much as had a zipper break on one of their packs. But Mystery Ranch doesn't just make fire packs. They've also got packs for hunting, backpacking, climbing, and skiing. I personally love their women's backcountry ski pack, which is low profile, sized for women, and has been perfect for resort laps or backcountry days at Mount Baker. After all that time spent with the mystery of pat rat, blah, 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 blah. I personally love their women's backcountry ski pack, which is low profile, sized for women, and has been perfect for resort laps on high avalanche danger days at Mount Baker or for day trips in the backcountry. After all that time spent with the Mystery Ranch Pack-On, I can confidently say that their products are not only durable and comfortable, but some of the best backpacks in the industry, whether you're carrying a fire shelter, hunting gear, or avalanche gear. Learn more and check out their lineup of great products at mysteryranch.com. Um, so now, the big question that I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer or not, but uh, you know, I get this all the time. I'm sure you hear it a lot yourself but how is climate change sort of influencing modern fire behavior and fire seasons? And that's a, that is a very tough question. It's complex, like I said, with everything in fire. You know, I've gotten that question a lot recently um, from 
just friends, family, media outlets. And the best way I can explain just the recent event is anytime you have these sort of events, it's not just one factor. Exactly. It may be a factor and it may be an important factor, but however, a lot of things have to line up for something like this to happen. Uh, you know, you've, you might've heard it, but the Swiss cheese model and, and, and risk mitigation, the holes of the cheese start to line up. And then when you have more holes line up, eventually you have a hole all the way through the cheese. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happened with this past event. You had a very warm and dry or hot and dry summer. You had, you know, significant heat wave events followed by a significant lightning event, followed by a significant heat wave, followed by a significant wind event. And all those things play, yeah, exactly, cascading effects, and they all are on top of each other. You take one of them out, it would have been less severe. You take two of them out, it would have been, it might not even been noteworthy. But because you had all of those stacked on top of each other, then it becomes a big deal, becomes historic or unprecedented. And I think the one thing is with you know, climate change or any other factors that may be contributing to this is are you kind of stacking the deck or are you loading the die? You know, some research indicates that we will have longer fire seasons and you know, could see an increase in large fire activity due to climate change. And I think that's something that we have to at least acknowledge and prepare for. Um, but in terms of attributing how much is climate change involved in this? You know, you talk to any of the climate experts and I'm not one of them, it's very hard to pin one event on climate change or really any one factor. That's great, great to know. Um, yeah, I, it, like, like with everything, there's always, there are always people looking for that black and white uh, sort of solution to that black and white answer yeah. and nothing with wildfire is black and white. Um, no. <laughs> Nothing with much of science is black and white, right. it seems like. <laughs> and especially with this week and how much misinformation is being spread around about not even misinformation, but people just latching on to the climate change argument and not yeah. seeing the bigger picture. Um, and so it's nice to have somebody just kind of, you know, be able to talk about the fact that climate change maybe is contributing, but that there are so many other factors at play here. Um, no, it, it, it's nice. And also you, when you're being interviewed, um, you can tell when people are leading you to an answer that they want you to say. It's a little more unnerving when you're doing a live interview and you, you feel that happening. Uh, but I always say, you know, just you, you have to answer to the best of your abilities and to the best of what science is out there. And there, and there might be people who could better answer those questions than me. Uh, you know, there are much smarter people who are tackling that, that question out there. Um, and they might have more insight than I do. Uh, so that's why I don't like to speak too much out of turn and try to keep it a little bit broad level and focus on what I do understand, uh, which is more of the, the fire weather aspect. Absolutely. Is there anything I didn't touch on that you would like to talk about or that are like is part of your sort of expertise that I didn't mention? I think the, I think just the crazy thing about this season was just you know how we were talking about how the layers start stacking up on just how many things fell into place to allow for this sort of event to happen. Uh, you know, like I was saying, you, you kind of start stacking the deck. If we didn't get this wind event, 
would we still have had a pretty active large fire season? Yeah, but if we would have had a different weather system come through last week compared to what we did get, it could have been, you know, 100% different than what we're seeing currently. And now the hope is just trying to get these fires buttoned up before we get into the peak season for offshore winds, uh, especially in California. And in terms of buttoning them up, are we kind of at an advantage right now because the quote unquote like cap is on? Like we kind of have, are we seeing diminished fire behavior right now? Because I know just with how much smoke is on in the coastal areas, it just seems like it seems like this, the, the atmosphere is really sort of stable right now. Do, do you agree with that? Or is there, are you seeing that? It depends. Um, reports from the field indicate mixed effects from the smoke. Some fires are still very active. Some fires not as active. Sometimes it depends on the day. With this much fire on the ground, very small changes in weather, including smoke and how dense the smoke is, can have a large effect on how active fires are and where they spread. So I think it's a little, it's a, a mixed blessing because if the smoke moves out, that usually means it's windier, which means you usually get more fire spread. Uh, but we've also still seen some active fire behavior uh, just due to the amount of fire on the ground and the heat that that creates, that the smoke has had not as much of an effect on, on some fires. Are you guys seeing any weather patterns coming through or any potential for, for precipitation in like the Northwest and in Northern California? Yeah, it looks like this week we will get a little bit of rain uh, across parts of the Pacific Northwest and maybe into the Northern Rockies. We're crossing our fingers right now. It looks a little bit more sure um, west of the Cascades, uh, but we're hoping for, you know, a, kind of an overproducing type of system to get a little bit more precipitation than is currently forecast. But we will see a, some moderation in conditions later this week. However, with the trough also brings some, some winds ahead of it uh, and down across the Great Basin. So it's always a double-edged sword when you get these sort of systems. And that's it for our fifth episode of Living with Fire. A huge thank you to Nick for finding time to speak with me during what had to have been one of the busiest weeks of his career. Uh, and if you haven't yet, you should uh, give Living with Fire a follow on Twitter or Instagram or maybe even Facebook if you're still into that sort of thing. If you want to get episode updates and highlights, or if you have an idea or a potential guest for an episode that you want to share with me, those are the places to do it. Anyway, signing off for now, and hope to catch you on the next episode.